Welcome to Christian Life Academy. We are working our way through chapter 1 of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, which is our uh, statement of faith. And essentially, this is a pretty big chapter. It takes a long time to cover it um, because there's some significant issues. Not only does it have a lot of paragraphs that actually make it a uh, fairly long chapter at any rate, but there's some significant issues here, uh, particularly uh, the issue of that we're in right now, uh, which is of Bible translations. Now, um, we've talked about the fact that our confession actually uh, makes the case uh, biblically that the Scripture should be available to people in a language that they can understand. That's called the vulgar tongue or the common tongue of the people. And uh, then we've started talking about, the obviously, our language, English translations, and how um, that was a necessary thing. Again, this was... Uh, flying in the face of, um, at the time of the confession being written, the Roman Catholic Church, because the Roman Catholic Church did not believe the people should have it in their language. They didn't feel that the people could understand it and would actually be prone to error. So they maintained that the, uh, there should be a different language that the scriptures were maintained in. Uh, Greek and Hebrew was obviously uh, existed and was, and was around, but they taught their priests Latin, so they maintained the scripture should be in Latin. And at uh, any rate... Confession says, nay, nay, that should not be the case. It should be in English. And so we began working through a little bit about um, the different translation uh, methods and uh, um, that we've worked our way to basically talking about two Greek texts, uh, two Greek texts. And this is really the predominant uh, Greek texts that are used in translation. There is an issue with Old Testament, our Hebrew text, and uh, that issue is essentially that... um, the Masoretic text, which is the one that has been preserved by the Jews, still in use today, is still the one they read from in the synagogue today, uh, was challenged. It was challenged during, um, basically by the Roman Catholic Church who redefined this. And uh, I don't want to go too far down that rabbit trail because I could talk further about that for a long time. And we have some slides, so I'll steal my own thunder. I don't want to do that. Actually, I do that all the time, don't I? At any rate, <laughs> so we're working our way through the uh, modern critical text. So we... We talked last week, we got into the Textus Receptus, and then we started talking about the modern critical text. And um, let me just back up a few slides here so we can just kind of hit the... Uh... All right. So we talked about that uh, the United Bible Society's uh, Greek New Testament and Nestle Allen 28th edition of the Novum Testament and Grace Day, which this, both of those are essentially um, modern editions of the Greek. Why are they the 28th edition, you might ask? That's a good question. We can start with that question. Has the Bible changed? According to them, it has. The modern critical text believes that the Bible's changed. Um, talked about the fact that it's textual criticism, eclectic text. It's got te- different text types. Greatest weight is given to the Alexandrian text, which we're going to get into those a little bit. Um, these texts were, are the most obscure text. 8%, I'm sorry, 5% of the texts are... Alexandrian text. Now, when we talk about that, what are we talking about? We're going to get into what exactly are the Alexandrian texts today. However, just understand that the Alexandrian texts are texts that came out of the Alexandrian school of theology. That's where they come from. Now, why is that an issue? It's an issue because the two major works that they find, there's actually three, but the two big ones that they find are both in a position where they've been discarded as heretical. And yet, These are the two primary texts that are used 
to justify this new version. Now you're going to see, I think, I hope you see, as we move through this, that there, the evidence is very clear that there has been a consistent, concerted effort to undermine the validity of the Scriptures. And this began in the second century and is still present today. Now, let me just clarify that. That's when the modern critical text, the Alexandrian text and all those began. And that's when they were a problem. The problem with undermining God's word goes back to where? The garden. Hath God said. Satan's first things we see him interacting with Eve is that he is questioning what God said. Right? Even in Cain's response to God, after he kills Abel, he's questioning what he's already been told. So, this work to undermine God's word is not new. It is a significant tool of Satan. He's doing very well with it today. Okay. Uh, We're going to talk about that more. All right. So the modern critical text is always open to change. Now, this is a problem for the modern critical text in our purview, not in theirs. It's always open to change as better theories of the text are developed or new manuscripts are discovered. The differences are decided by scholars, Christian and non instead of the church. How did we get, we talked about this months ago, the canon of Scripture. How did they decide what books were in the Bible? Now, if you want to watch ridiculously untrue, and I would argue detrimental, movies like The Da Vinci Code, or read books like The Da Vinci Code, you'll see the suggestion that Constantine decided the books of the Bible. Nothing's farther from the truth. There's no historical evidence of that whatsoever. In fact, the books of the Bibles were already decided before Constantine. The canon was, was accepted by the church. The church met and decided what books were actually the scripture. And there were rules that they applied as they went through these. Most of the books of the Bible were not a question. Certainly not the Old Testament. They accepted the same thing the Jews accepted. That was the word of God to them. Same books that Christ quoted from. It wasn't those. It was the New Testament, and there was only a few that were questionable. Only a few that some a small number of churches were not really sure. So when they got together in a council, they talked about it, debated it, and did agree that those should be included in the canon of Scripture. That's where we see this decided. It was not decided by non-Christians. Can you see a problem with non-Christians deciding which books should be included in the Bible? Yeah. The Holy Spirit is not working within them. This is a huge problem. So, of course, using an academic process to determine what should be part of the Scripture is invalid. Now, this is an argument that proponents of the modern critical text or of the Alexandrian text in general will continuously make, and that is that the Bible should be treated like any other book. The same rules of textual criticism should be applied to the Bible as are applied to other books. Now, that would deny any involvement of God in the process, right? So if you believe in the, in the providential preservation of Scripture, which we do, then you cannot treat the Bible like any other book. Why? God hasn't watched over the preservation of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Are you with me on this? Why? It's not his word. It's not his word. So would you treat analysis of that book differently than the scripture? You should. You should. And 
the Iliad and the Odyssey are inspired. Right? So if a modern scholar comes out with a version of the Iliad and the Odyssey, and that version of the Iliad and the Odyssey is changed from the original manuscript that they have, which, by the way, they don't have any original manuscripts. There's a hint. We have two copies of copies of copies. They don't agree. So some scholars have made the decision about what's in the Iliad and the Odyssey. Now, when they do that, right, we can say, oh, well, that's not proper. That's not good. But our faith is not based on that. Our instruction for living is not based on this. Our place in the realm of spirituality is not based on this, and certainly determining where we will spend eternity is not based on the Iliad and the Odyssey. It's based on God's Word and what His Word says. So, of course, there should be some different methods employed to considering what text is proper for the Scripture. But the modern critical text proponents say that's not true. And certainly, when we go back and we're going to talk about it, Westcott and Hort, they did not consider that. Both of them, not believers, by the way. Most of the Bibles today are based on their original translation work, which both of those Greek texts are based on that. Neither one of them are believers. I'm going to read some quotes from them. You will not believe that these guys actually were the ones who wrote the text that's used for most Bibles today. All right. So the modern critical text is the basis for virtually all modern English translations today, including the Revised Standard Version, the New American Standard, the Today's English Version, or the TEV, the New International Version, the NIV, and the English Standard Version. Almost every, almost, even almost all New King James Bibles, which are based on the Texas Receptus, are full of footnotes referring to MCT changes. So how do they do that? Well, in the footnotes, they'll say, a better reading would be this, or another definition would be this, or the oldest texts say this, throughout the entire scripture. Why? Because they're referring to the Alexandrian texts. You think that's confusing? It should be. Okay, so we were talking about the modern critical text. Now we're going to move on to the providential preservation and textual criticism together. So the differences between the Textus Receptus and the modern critical text are significant in some places. Adherence to the, to the Textus Receptus emphasize these. The modern critical text adherents dismiss them. So there are differences. What about them? Textus Receptus say, oh, this is a big deal. Look at what's changed. Modern critical text says, not such a big deal. Not such a big deal. Well, I'm going to show you changes, and you can judge if you think they're a big deal. You know where we're going, right? Because <laughs> like, I wouldn't be bringing it up if it wasn't an issue. Scripture must be our beginning and source of consideration of this controversy. The doctrines that directly relate are that of verbal inspiration and providential preservation. You understand that if you believe that God has preserved his word, says his word will last forever, right in his word, if, he, if you believe that, then you have to believe that he's preserved it. If you believe all the different things, and we read some before, last couple of weeks, all these different places in Scripture where they say this is the word from God, God said, God, the, God told, say this to them, we see all these things. If you believe that's true, then you should care that that is what he said. That it's not just somebody in saying, well, you know, thou shalt not kill is more like, you know, a guideline. 
No. We should care. So if we consider those doctrines, which we can see in Scripture, that should control how we view this controversy over versions. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. All right. So, the Texas Receptus and Providential Preservation. Let's talk, we're going to talk about both. The Texas Receptus bears the marks of being providentially preserved text. It certainly bears the marks of it. It is preserved in 90% of the existing Greek manuscripts. We're going to talk about the numbers today, but you're going to see how many manuscripts there are and which of them agree with the Texas Receptus and which ones agree with the modern critical text. Understand that we're talking about the differences. Are you with me on that? So the modern critical text Greek and the Texas Receptus Greek, those two things agree in a lot of places. Right? So we're not talking about where they agree. We're talking about where there's a difference. 90% are match the Texas Receptus. Okay? Are you with me on this? You understand what I'm saying here by this? I don't want this to be confusing. You've got to give me a nod or something. I mean, nobody's, everybody's like deer in the headlights. Okay. The Texas Receptus is theologically superior to the modern critical text and is an ancient text of the highest quality. Now, we look at theology and doctrine. This is the most significant problem with the modern critical text. It eliminates many of the proof texts we use for our doctrines. They're not there. Now, I'm going to make the argument to you that that's because the people who actually began this work wanted to eliminate those doctrines. That was their goal. They didn't agree. Like, Christ was God. Should that matter to us? Does it matter that Christ was God? You know what doesn't matter? What color Peter's hair was. Does it matter? No. How about, let me ask you a question. Theologically, does it matter if the boy had five loaves or six loaves that Christ multiplied miraculously and fed the 5,000 men plus women and children? Does that matter? It doesn't matter. If Christ was not God, you aren't going to heaven. You don't have any way. You don't have any way. It's only because he is God that you can go. That his sacrifice can be applied to you. That's it. It should matter. It's not the only thing that's been changed. But that alone is enough reason not to trust another text. The only Greek New Testament text in circulation and use in the church throughout its entire history. That's the Textus Receptus. So we talk about the Alexandrian text. They have not been in use. They were gone. We'll harp on that more in a minute. It is the only printed form of the Greek New Testament until 1831. The only printed form of the Greek New Testament until 1831. It was used by God to birth the Reformation. The Reformers did not trust any other texts, like the Vulgate, etc. The Reformers had to determine what was Scripture. The Roman Catholic Church said Latin was referenced. The Reformers said Hebrew and Greek. Now we're going to get into the Vulgate, because this is another thing that's been used to confuse people. There is not just one Vulgate. There are multiple Vulgates. The Latin Vulgate was created by the Roman Catholic Church. The old Latin Vulgate existed far before the Latin Vulgate, and that was accepted by the Church universally. 
Is it different? You bet it is. Absolutely it is. There was a centuries-long life-and-death struggle with the Roman Catholic Church over the Texas Receptus. Why? They could not abide there being any challenges to how they had changed the Scripture. Now, why? Why would the Roman Catholic Church not be happy about somebody questioning or challenging their changes to the Scripture? Well, of course, because a lot of the things that they suggest are true are based on their changes to the Scripture. Things that the Roman Catholic Church believes that we don't. The Roman Catholic Church, by the way, used textual criticism to attack the Bible. That was what they did. Textus Receptus was used in every branch of Christianity, which is why it became known as the Textus Receptus, or Textus Receptus just means received text, the received text. In other words, it was the text that the church had received as a scripture. It was accepted by the church as a scripture. The Helvetic Formula Consensus of 1675, which has been called the epitome of Reformed scholastic theology, upheld the doctrines of inspiration and preservation and declared the Masoretic Old Testament text and the text of Receptus New Testament the sole and complete rule of our faith and practice. Now look, our belief and our faith is not based on what the Reformers thought. We'll buckle up on that, right? It is not based on what the Reformers thought. Why do we quote the Reformers? Why do we turn to the Reformers? Here's how far we quote the Reformers, as far as they agree with Scripture. Our faith is based on God's Word. It's not based on John Calvin. Was John Calvin right 100% of the time? Anybody? Now, you know that's true, especially because he's the man, right? He's, but can you think of any, any controversies that he was particularly wrong on? What was that? Infant baptism. <laughs> good one. Infant baptism, right? How about something that even the Presbyterians would disagree with? They would say he was wrong. Everybody says he's wrong. He later said he was wrong. It's how he handled the controversy with Zwingli. Completely wrong. Somebody who he didn't agree with, and he went after him with a vengeance. He regretted it later. Some of the statements he made about that were wrong. We don't base our faith on John Calvin. He's imperfect. But is he the greatest reformer ever? Eh, well, maybe. Maybe. Maybe John Knox was. Who knows? It doesn't matter. What matters is God's word. That's what matters. It's not who preached what. Look, is... I'm not putting him down here. Is the greatest soul winner of all time Billy Graham? He might be. He might be. I guarantee he's preached to more people than anyone in history. No question about that. But so what if he is? Our faith isn't based on Billy Graham. It's not based on John MacArthur, Alistair Begg. It's not based on any of them. It's based on God's word. God's word. So when we look at what's important, it has to be what God's word is. So when we see this statement here, we see the epitome of Reformed scholastic theology, this, great, this conference that happened, and then we see what they call it. All we're doing is we're saying, look, 
even 400 years ago, this recognition by the church, by the same relatively close people that wrote our own confession of faith to explain these doctrines of the scripture, said that this is the way it is. It was not the Alexandrian text. It was not other competing texts. It was the Masoretic Old Testament and the Textus Receptus for the New Testament. All right. So let's talk about the modern critical text in providential preservation. Okay, boom, first point. We should just change to the next subject. The modern critical text was not available to the church until 1831. It was not available to the church until 1831. It is constantly changing. It's virtually not preserved at all. Constantly changing. Proponents discuss discount providential preservation. They posit that it does not matter at all. Why? Well, we talked about this, and I mean, it is... The thing is, is that when you evaluate this stuff and you really think through it and you examine what they have said themselves, proponents of the modern critical text, the translators, even the prefaces in the Bibles that are based on the modern critical text, and you just read it and you think about it, it's bewildering that people use these Bibles. Because they say right in them that God's word is changing. Let me ask you. Did you ever play a game when you were a kid? Whatever it was. Let's say it's uh, Capture the Flag. Everybody remember Capture the Flag? Or whatever it is. Let's just say you're playing a game. Maybe it's stickball on the street or you're playing, whatever. And while you're playing, Monopoly. Pick your passion here. And then halfway through the game, whoever brought the ball or brought the game or whoever's house it's at, changed the rules. It doesn't feel fair. Usually, how do they change them so that their team does better, right? <laughs> Usually, that's what it is, right? You, if you change the rules in the process, how are people going to actually perform well? How are they going to succeed? It's hard, isn't it? How, how would you feel if God's rules were changing all the time? Well, this would not be good, would it? Wait, we are supposed to be wearing special underwear? You say, where did that come from? Mormons! They wear special underwear. If you didn't know this, it's totally true. The Mormons wear special underwear. That's part of their faith. Now you say, well, that's crazy. Why would someone care about what you wear under your clothes? Oh, be careful. What did the Old Testament God tell the Jews to wear under their clothes? The men. Linen. With tassels. Have you ever seen an Orthodox Jew that has the tassels and the little bit of linen? You can see it around their shirt. Why? God commanded it. That's gone. Praise the Lord on a hot day. (laughs) But you understand, right? If the rules changed, what? We all have to wear football helmets now? How is this? What is this? Hey, we found some new Greek text. That's the new thing. Used to be Viking helmets, but the church is, you know, but they said it's going to be football helmets. Counts. Because the Vikings are a football team, so that helps. Anyway, you understand, right? So if the rules are changing, because God's word changes all the time, you're kind of in trouble. You're in trouble. Now, this is what's happening in the emerging church. 
This is what's happening in many modern churches. It's not just the emerging church. The emerging church is certainly wholeheartedly on this bandwagon, which is what? God's word is whatever you think God's word is. As if God now serves you. In other words, you decide what God says. You see a problem there? Now, of course, this is what man has been doing for all time. Cain brought the sacrifice he wanted to bring. Right? He brought the sacrifice he wanted to bring. Not what was called for. See, he wanted it his way. Has anyone else ever wanted something their way? It's dangerous territory when we're talking about things that affect eternity. Right? We should care what God says. We should want to know what God says. And we want to make really, really sure that it's not changing and shifting. But that's the entire concept behind the modern critical text. The reason that you have new versions is because things changed. Really? Yes, things changed. Why? Well, we found a scrap of a book in a cave that said something different. You say, they don't do that. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. But most of the changes today are not that. The changes are, here's what it said in the Greek that's too harsh today. So we change it to make it less harsh, to make it more palatable to people today. You say, well, surely that hasn't happened. <laughs> you guys are going to love what other stuff I'm going to show you. All right. If preservation is eliminated, the scholar decides what Scripture says, not God. Man questioning God, what God said in Genesis 3.1. All right. Preservation makes the TR have all the marks of authentic Scripture and the MCT have none. The doctrines of preservation would mean that the MCT was preserved in only a handful of existing manuscripts, was lost to the church for over a thousand years, and was restored only utilizing Enlightenment naturalistic textual criticism principles and the majority vote of scholars. That should make you question the modern critical text. That's it in a nutshell. You want me to read it again? The doctrine of preservation would mean that the modern critical text was preserved in only a handful of existing manuscripts, was lost to the church for over a thousand years, and was restored only utilizing enlightenment, naturalistic, textual criti critical principles and the majority vote of scholars. In other words, the only way that we got this text that had been missing all this time, was never available to the church, was by using man's, man's knowledge and scholarly principles to make this the Bible. We should see problems with this. Look, if this is true, if this is true, if the modern critical text is true, based on all of that, you don't need it. You don't need it. Why is their interpretation better than your mind interpretation? I saw this happening in nature, and I think that's the way I should behave. Have you heard that? You should. Why shouldn't we drink milk? 
well. No other species in nature drinks the milk of another species. Have you heard that? Just not true. That's the only problem. Just not true. There's all kinds of examples of things that are different in nature than human behavior. Why? They're not human. They're not man. There is a difference. There is a difference. You say, well, nobody else in nature can drive a car, so we shouldn't drive a car. What? What? Listen, if Jacob would hear, he would say, shame! Anyway. <laughs> what are the dangers of the modern critical text? Well, we've kind of been already saying what the dangers are, but I just have bullet points here. Rejecting traditional texts of Scripture used by the church, it empowers a handful of textual scholars to determine the next, the new text for the church. Enlightenment principles lead to skepticism of the text of Scripture, making it relative to changing opinions. Look, let me tell you a statistic. You're going to love this. 95% of self-proclaimed Christians who trade their Bibles for a newer translation stop reading it within six months. 95% of self-proclaimed Christians who trade their Bible in for a newer translation stop reading it within six months. Now, there's another part to that study. I have a hard time believing it. So I'm not even going to tell you what the numbers are. But it's how many Christians, self-proclaimed Christians, leave the faith within six months of trading their Bible to a new translation. It's a lot. Why? Why would that happen? I mean, wouldn't that be strengthen their faith? to help them to understand God's word easier, right? Because they can read it in terms that they can understand. It's counterintuitive. No, it's not. And this is why. It makes it relative to changing opinions. So your stability, the counting on God's word as this is what the truth is, this is where I need to turn to, this is what I can trust, is shaken. Because it's different. It's not the same. You see this principle. You may not have known that number, but you have seen this principle before. How many Christian students lose their faith when they go to college? You want to know more about that, go to the library and sign out Already Gone by Ken Ham. The majority lose their faith when they go to college. Majority. Why? They see all this stuff to question their faith. They're not strong. They're weak. They're immature. They're swayed. Some come back, most don't. Do you think it matters that we have uh, God's word that we can depend on that doesn't change? Look, does it matter to you if you can depend on the love of a family member no matter what happens? Does that matter? It matters. Stability is important to you. It's important to you. Instability is what shakes you up. Right? When you, when you can't count on something, you get anxious, nervous. Right? Stressed. I mean, there's a lot of bad things, right? If you lose your job, stability is lost. You are in the topsy-turvy world. 
except for Doug. He seems like he just rolls with the punches all the time. Does it really good. Of course, he loses, he loses his job, and then he's got, you know, like, I can't wait to get out of there because i got so much other stuff i got to do. <laughs> right? Am I saying right, Doug? Okay. <laughs> in conclusion, if we believe in the doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration and providential preservation, we must reject the MCT as a corrupt and untrustworthy representation of the original Greek New Testament. If we believe God has ensured his word is kept pure in all ages, which is a quote from the scripture, the Texas Receptus must be the authentic representation of the original autographic text of the New Testament. And the Masoretic text is the authentic representation of the original Hebrew Old Testament. Now this is, I mean, there's so many books written on this, right? I am touching, I mean, the very mountaintops. We are just touching the mountaintop and not going down the mountain to get into the doctrine of every aspect of this. We are going to talk, we're not done, we're going to talk more about it, but my point is, is that if you really want to get into this because you want to understand more about it, ask me. I can give you some book references that you could read that will give you more information on whatever aspect you want to talk to, because believe me, there are books, many books written on every aspect of what we're talking about. All right. All right, so now we're going to talk about current English translations. Current English translations. First, information on manuscripts. So what is a manuscript? This is what we need to talk about. I've been mentioning manuscripts. You can't explain all this in the beginning. I have to break some of it back down now as we go, unpack it a little bit. And one is manuscript. Well, a manuscript is a handwritten document. That's what a manuscript is. There are over 5,300 existing manuscripts of the Scripture. Now, what does that mean? 5,300 copies? No. Some of these manuscripts contain a large portion of Scripture, while others are only fragments. Others could be just a, almost a verse, right? Some small fragment that they found someplace, and that is considered a manuscript. All right, of the Greek manuscripts from which all New Testament translations are derived, there are only two groups. There's only two groups. The Textus Receptus and the Alexandrian Text. The Textus Receptus represents the majority, 95% or more, of existing manuscripts. These extant manuscripts were brought together by various editors such as Lucian in 250 to 312, Erasmus, Stephanus, Beza, and the Elzevir brothers, which we talked about some of them, but we're going to, this is the summary section here. The Alexandrian text, primarily the Westcott and Hort Greek text, based primarily on the Codex Sinaiticus, or, yeah, Sinaiticus and the Codex Vaticanus, but also includes the Alexandrian Codex, the Parisian Codex, and the Codex Bezae, are represented by only a few texts. The majority text today, and I'm putting a quote-unquote, the majority quote-unquote text today, is not truly the majority of text. I think I mentioned this before. This is like the Federalist-Anti-Federalist thing. The Anti-Federalists will actually Federalists, and the Federalists will actually Anti-Federalists, but you don't want to be anti-anything. So the, Fed, the, anti, the Federalists kind of got stuck in a corner because the Anti-Federalists chose federalism. I mean, they chose the term Federalists. We're talking about during the Constitution debate here in the United States. So the majority text today is not the majority. It is a collection of only 8% of the total number of Greek manuscripts, handpicked by pro-Alexandrian Dr. Von Sodden and his team. It's less than 400 texts. So of the 5,600, less than 400 agreed with the Alexandrian. Those were chosen and called the majority text. Is it the majority of the manuscripts? No. It's not. 
So what is the true majority text? The text is Receptus. But what is the title of majority text given to Alexandrian text? Now you'll depend this let me give you a hint. Look that up. What is the majority text? And you will know right away if you're reading a pro-Alexandrian modern critical text site or you're reading a pro-Texas Receptus site. You will know right away. Because they're both going to say what the other guy says. Right? So, I looked again yesterday. I had a few saved, so I went back just to see what they said again. So one of them, uh, you know, like right away they're like, the majority text is also claimed by the adherents of the Texas Receptus, but that's not true. Here's what's true, blah, blah, blah. And then you go to the Texas Receptus site, and they'll say, the majority text is not actually the majority text. It's only it's less than 400 Greek manuscripts claimed by such and such because they're trying to promote their text. Okay, so when you go and look it up, you'll see these different things, and you'll know what kind of site. So you're able to use that in your brain as a filter and say, okay, what are they saying and what are they saying? And let me just try to evaluate this a little bit, which I encourage you to do. All right. Of the 5,300 manuscripts in just, that's wrong, 56, these manuscripts exist in several different formats. So here's the formats that these manuscripts exist in. So we've talked about uh, papyrus, we've talked about parchment, we've talked about some of that, but this, these, when you look at the formats, papyrus is actually broken down a little bit because the others are all in uh, uh, vellum or animal skin. So papyrus. Papyrus was relatively inexpensive compared to vellum or animal skin. Oh, vellum or animal skin, and therefore was widely used. However, it was not very durable, and copies would wear out rather rapidly through usage. The size of these papyrus fragments ranged from a few verses to large portions of an entire book. So we still have papyrus versions of the scripture. Unical. Well, these are copies that were written in capital letters. What are they written on? Vellum, animal skins. Sometimes we call that parchment. Not exactly the same, but parchment was kind of a later purification of that. Cursive. Well, these were written in small hand. So there are some scriptures that were, you understand there's some difference, right? So unical would be the whole thing is in caps, right? Like very easy to see the letters. Cursive is, it's cursive, like, it's different, but it's like we, like we write in cursive. Well, like they used to teach in school. Cursive. Not quite as easy always to see every letter. You agree with me on that? Depending on the cursive. Yeah. True. Lection, I should put that in there. Lectionary. A book that contains a collection of scripture readings. So we see this too, right? So there are a collection of scripture readings, but it's not supposed to be the scripture. Are you with me on this? This is not wrong. This is like having... Okay, so let me give you... This is a... I'm going to peek behind the curtain here. I'm going I'm to let you see behind the elder's curtain. We have a pre-printed document of benedictions. Yeah, a bunch of benedictions from Scripture. We don't use every one of those all the time. Sometimes we use different benedictions. But we have a document that's benedictions. Why? It's a collection of benedictions. Right? So a collection of Scripture reading is not a bad thing. Not because we have a collection of benedictions. It's just not a bad thing. You think about it. If you have a devotional... It's a collection, right? Nothing wrong with that. But we do see that, so it's not that, there, it's not that that Greek manuscript was a scripture, but it had in it scripture readings. Now you can see that sometimes a translator would have to be careful about how they apply that. Why? 
I don't know if you ever noticed this, but sometimes we do our readings in the service. I can't see how many times Paul and Branch do this, but I definitely I do it. Where we'll have a reading, and it will not be every verse in the passage. Now, that's not true on the psalm meditation. That's a whole psalm or a section of a psalm. But in the scripture reading, sometimes it will be like seven verses and then later on in the chapter, five more verses. Or even the readings that we do responsively. It could be all from Hebrews chapter 3, but maybe we choose verse, 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 skip to, verse, verse, skip to. You understand what I'm saying? So they have to be careful when they're using a book on Scripture readings that they're not somehow thinking or trying to apply this idea that, wait a minute, that's not what these other versions all show. These other Greek manuscripts don't show it like this. So those verses are added. No, this is a lectionary. You understand what I'm saying? You get me on this? All right. That's not the biggest number anyway. All right. All right, so here we go. Now, this is the numbers compiled in 1967. So the numbers have gone up, uh, but the percentages aren't really changed. So there's the type of manuscripts. Pyrus Unical Cursive Lectionary. So here's the total t- of the types, right? This is how many. There's 88 papyrus, 267 Unical, 2765 cursive or minuscule, and 2143 lectionary. The percentage, the number or a percentage that support the Alexandrian text, papyrus, 15%. 85% support the Texas Receptus. Of Unical, 3%. 97% support Texas Receptus. Of the cursive or minuscule, 1%. 99% support Texas Receptus. Of the lectionary, the books that show what people read in worship, Zero support the Alexandrian text. 100% support the Texas Receptus. Let me ask you, which one's the majority text? It's not even a question, is it? It isn't a question. All right, so now we're going to get into the background of each one. We'll start with the King James. I don't know if we'll finish that today. I think I'll move through it pretty quick here, though. Okay, so here's the timeline to the authorized version. Now, when I say, wait a minute. You just said King James Version. Now you're saying authorized. Well, that's because the James Ver- James, King James Version is, is also called the Authorized Version. Right? It's also called the Authorized Version. Now, that particularly came into effect in the United States. Why? Well, for some reason, the Founding Fathers here did not want to have a Bible authorized by the king. Are you with me on that? So they came out with the Authorized Version. How different was it? It wasn't. It was no different. The title was different. And so you'll see different pastors will talk about the authorized version versus the King James Version. Some Bibles you'll see will be the authorized version versus the King James Version. It's the same Bible. Don't, don't go down that path and worry about it. All right. So in 1388, Wycliffe prints the first English translation of the Bible, whoop, extra, based on the old Latin Vulgate, which is not the Roman Catholic Church, but Latin Vulgate. 1453, Gutenberg invents the printing press. The first book printed is the Bible in Latin, called the Gutenberg Bible. Guess what it was based on? The old Latin Vulgate. 1516, Desiderius Erasmus, first Greek New Testament, is printed and published. And you may have heard of Erasmus, because this was a pretty big deal for him to do this. Now there's entire websites, entire books, that go into what Erasmus used to come up with his version of of the Greek. Now, I can tell you is that basically he based it on the old Latin Vulgate. Now, this is what you'll frequently hear today. 
you'll frequently hear that Erasmus based his Greek New Testament, which was definitely influential, on the Latin Vulgate. The question should be, which Latin Vulgate? Because he wrote about what he used. He actually went after the Roman Catholic Church. He was one of the proponents that the the Latin Vulgate of the Roman Catholic Church was not the Word of God. Erasmus wrote about this. He didn't base his printing on the book that he argued wasn't the Word of God. All right, 1525, William Tyndale's New Testament. Hopefully these are some names you've heard of. William Tyndale's New Testament, based on Erasmus Greek, completed in 1530. Tyndale produces the first translation of Hebrew to English with publishing of the Pentateuch. He is executed in 1536. Guess for doing what? Translating the scriptures into English. All right. 1560, the Geneva Bible is printed, compiled by exiles from England to Geneva. So they've left England because now they're under persecution. In Geneva, they come up with the Geneva Bible. They print it. It is a very meticulous rendering from Greek and Hebrew. There are 140 editions from 1560 to 1644. In 1568, the Bishop's Bible is printed. What is that? Well, that is now the official Bible of the Church of England. So now the crown has printed a Bible, and they've declared it the official Bible to be read in the churches in England. The problem is, is that it is Catholic. In 1604, there's a Hampton Court Conference. And we're going to talk about that. In 1611, the authorized version is printed with the Apocrypha as historic books, not canon. was later removed officially in 1885. King James, to give a little background to it now, that was the timeline. King James lived from 1566 to 1625, became king as a boy. He was the first to call for a combination of nations and called Great Britain. So he is the first one who actually came up with the term Great Britain for the combination of the, of the nations in the English Empire, the English Empire at that point. In 1604, he called for the Hampton Court Conference. So in this slide I just said there's a Hampton Court Conference in 1604. Then you see what's next, 1611. Why? To settle disagreements between the Church of England, the Church of Scotland, and the Protestants. So he worked on combining the nations and the kingdom together. Right? Hey, we're all big, one happy family, Great Britain. Except the churches in the other territories had a big problem with the Church of England. Which was, who, who runs the Church of England? Who? The king. the king. It's the government. It's the king. The king is the head of the church in the Church of England. So they had a problem with it because they don't believe that. So when the, when the crown says this is the Bible you must use, they have a problem. Why? He doesn't know. He's young. Let's have a conference and let you guys duke it out. He's like, I want to see John Knox. No, he, John Knox went around him. <laughs> at the conference, the Protestants called for a new authoritative translation. So at the conference, the Protestants said, look, we need a new translation. Now why? Well, because the, the Bishop's Bible was official for the Bible for England. The Geneva Bible, printed for 50 years with study notes. The Geneva was the standard for Oliver Cromwell in England, William Shakespeare, John Knox, John Calvin, and the Reformers. So the Protestants wanted a Geneva-like version that was authorized to be read in the churches in Great Britain. The translation had been accepted. It was in the church all over the place. They wanted to have an official version that was the official Church of England Bible that they could agree with. The king would not allow the Geneva Bible. Why? Because of the notes. Because of the notes. 
that directly contradicted the divine right of kings that he embraced. Here's an example. Let me read, let me read the passage to you instead of just that little part. Exodus. 1, 15 through 18. And the king of Egypt spake unto the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of one was Shipra, and the name of another Puah. And he said, When you do the office of a midwife to a Hebrew woman, and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. And if it be a daughter, then she shall live. Here's the key verse, verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them but save the men children alive. And the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said unto them, Why have ye done this thing and have saved the men child alive? So what does it say in the Geneva Bible? Their disobedience in this was lawful, but their deception is evil. You see a problem if you're the king who believes in divine right of kings, that you, whatever you say goes, period, doesn't matter if it's in the Bible or not? You see this? That's one of many passages that contradicted the divine right of kings. King James didn't want it. He could see there was a problem there for him. So he called for a conference to create a translation that would replace the Geneva. In 1604, 54 of the best biblical scholars were assembled and divided into six groups at three locations. Three worked on the Old Testament, two on the New Testament, and one on the Apocrypha. Now we're going to talk about the Apocrypha, don't worry yet. All, were available, all the available Greek manuscripts were gathered every Greek manuscript that they could find were gathered, as well as the Geneva and the Tyndale translations. So they had those. And if you read the beginning of the King James Bible, or the authorized version, and they have a letter to the reader, you'll see that they talk about the work that's gone before them. They can't call it the Geneva. Why? That would have made the king mad. But the translators themselves did write about that separately, <laughs> that they were referring to the Geneva Bible. It was largely based on the Geneva Bible translation. They use 15 rules to govern their translation. Here's the two that are most important. Number one, translation should follow as much as possible the bishop's Bible. Well, they followed the Geneva. They didn't follow the bishops. Number six, no interpretive notes, only explanation of Hebrew or Greek words. So if you look back to very early, there's two original copies of the 1611 that exist. There are no footnotes. That's one of the things he wanted. No footnotes. No, we don't want to, no, 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 no. No footnotes. Each group took one section. So you got six groups. Each group took a section, working one book at a time. So they would all work through one book at a time. Well, how did they do that? Each translator made his own translation of the book. Then it was reviewed by each of the other members of the group. So you would do your own translation. They all did their own translations. Everybody reviewed everybody else's translations. This is why we go from 1604 to 1611. Then, the entire group reviewed the book together, agreed on the translation, if there was any discrepancy still. Then they sent it to the other five groups for them to go through the same process with what they wrote. Any recommendations by the other groups were sent to the original group for evaluation. Now, you could just think about that for a second. That's an immense amount of work, isn't it? All by hand. Why? It's God's word. That's how they treated it. This contradicts modern translations, many of which entire books are written by one person. Nobody reviews it. When all six committees finished the book, it was sent to a special committee. I'm talking about like one book of the Bible. 
It was sent to a special committee made up of one leader from each of the six groups to finalize any remaining problems. So after they went through that whole process where everybody in the group reviews it, then all the other groups review it, then it goes back to the other group, it makes any other changes, then it goes back to a special group that has leaders from all six of the groups, and they all get together and talk through it all. Then it's sent to the printer. In total, every single verse of the Bible was carefully examined and decided on a total of 14 times, making it impossible for one translator to impose his personal viewpoint. There were no personal translations in the KGB. Once the KJV was accepted by the church, it supplanted the Geneva and was accepted universally until 1881 when the ERV New Testament was published and 1885 when the ERV Old Testament was published based on the MCT. So it was the only Bible. The Geneva Bible faded. Why? King James was better. There were a few things changed. Corrections. Printing corrections. They worded it a little differently. The language was a little different. Is the Geneva Bible still the Word of God? Absolutely. There's not any question. It's very close to the King James. But there's a lot of great footnotes in the Geneva. A lot of great explanatory footnotes in the Geneva. Not tainted by the modern critical text. Multiple corrections were made to the King James, primarily due to type style, like Gothic to Roman, spelling standardization, and printing errors. Now That was, that was the Geneva to the King James. Today, we use the Oxford 1769 edition. There has never been a revision. So even as the King James continued and they made printing corrections, they're like, don't forget, we're talking about, this is not very long after Gutenberg came up with the printing press. The technology had not substantially changed by 1611 at all. Right? So the guy who manually does the typesetting to make the first thing could make a mistake. Are you with me on this? And they don't keep it. Like, they're going to print something else. Those letters come back out. Print it on the page. <laughs> they have to retypeset it and then print that page. So this process, you can have a mistake in printing. The language, and th by the way, this is important because this is one of the things the modern critical text will say about the King James. There's been so many revisions to the King James. You can't trust it. It's not the original thing. Not true. There's been no revisions. No revisions. The language in the KJV is unique. It was purposefully unlike the spoken language at the time. It was intended to more accurately reflect the Hebrew and the Greek, as well as create a reference for God's Word. This would be called Biblical English. If you haven't heard of that term, Biblical English. What is it? It's unique. It's unique. It's what you see in the King James. It's what you see in the King James. The words of the KJV like thee, thou, ye, etc., Denote the plurality of who was being addressed. English words you or your don't have that distinction. Right? If I say thee or ye, do I mean two different things? I do. If I say thee, what am I saying? You. <laughs> really? Is that what you said? Oh, who said it? Bev? You. The, sorry. Thee, you said you. Do I mean you or you? If I say thee? Right. What if I say ye? And you could also say you. You. Right? That's what we would say. But if you want to know exactly if the Bible is talking to a person or talking to a group, you have to use different terms. Right? Thee and ye. Single or plural. You. I don't know. <laughs> Who was he looking at when he said it? 
All right, for the timeline, we'll finish this. Let me see. Yeah. All right. 1629, the first Cambridge edition is printed, correcting errors in earlier editions, particularly italics and punctuation. 1769, the Oxford University edition is printed, commonly regarded as the standard edition from which modern Bibles are printed. The 1782 Robert Aikens Bible is the first Bible printed in America based on the Oxford University printing. Okay, so that's it for the King James. Then we're going to move to the modern critical text next week. Let's close in a word of prayer.